Good morning, hey. Burn. Good morning, Richard Gottlieb, and welcome everyone to the Playground Podcast. We're excited to be with you as we continue in social distancing uh, and doing all of this remotely. And we've got a very exciting guest today. Chris Bench from the Strong Museum of Play. He is the chief curator, so if you get your toy in there, you got to get through him, right, Chris? I am the <laughs> gatekeeper to the wonders of the world. Let's start off by talking a little bit about the museum and and a little bit about its history and how it came to be in Rochester, of all places. Well, we are the biggest museum of toys, dolls, games, video games in the world. And we owe our genesis to an eccentric, wealthy collector, a woman named Margaret Woodbury Strong. And if you can arrange to be the only child of wealthy parents that is a really good course of action. I recommend it highly. It's not one that I managed to take. Margaret's parents uh, were in businesses that it was great to be getting out of at the start of the 20th century. Her mother's family was in flour milling. Her father's family was in buggy whip manufacture. Both Get out of on, here. On the hold downhill on. Hold trajectory. <laughs> Oh, Wait, you, right you just hit Richard's sweet spot. Go ahead, Richard. <laughs> I've always wondered what the uh-oh moment was for the buggy whip industry. And I'm actually talking to someone who may have that answer. When, when did they realize that it was all over? I think it was early in the 19... 19- Aughts when John Woodbury sold his rights in their factory and they put all their cards and all their dough on investment in a new little Rochester firm called Eastman Kodak. Wow. wow. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder who that poor man was that bought the buggy. <laughs> I, I feel for him. So this woman, you say she was eccentric. Uh, had a lot of money with an only child. Father brilliantly invested in Eastman Kodak. So what did she do with all that money? It was something that she started indulging in, even as a child. Her parents were collectors. They traveled the world, and they gave Margaret a bag to go off for the day, and she could fill it with souvenirs. She realized pretty soon that if she collected little things, she could spend a longer time away from her parents filling her bag (laughs) with little goodies. So that created her fandom for tiny objects, which would turn into a love of dollhouses. Her husband and daughter predeceased her, sadly, and she went into collecting overdrive. She amassed a massive collection. If the TV show Hoarders had been around, she would have been a featured star. So by the time she died in 1969, she was the largest single stockholder in Eastman Kodak. She had this 36-room house packed to overflowing, especially with her favorites, toys, dolls, and games. And she had established a museum the previous year. She had a provisional charter for what she called the Margaret Woodbury Strong Museum of Fascination. (laughs) And and that was in her home? That was in that home? It was going to be in her home, but the neighbors in her Tony neighborhood didn't want to think about the kind of riffraff that museums attract. Oh, yes, they do. do. It's terrible. (laughs) They blocked the museum actually starting up in her estate. And 
the museum's trustees eventually, in 1982, established a brand new museum building in downtown Rochester. Is her house open for tours, or did somebody move in and live there? What happened with the house? It has been subdivided. What was a wide estate is now filled with condos. The house is private hands. Um, It went through a shady period. If you remember the 1-900 numbers, a couple owned it and had a 1-900 business. And uh, I understand there were very lively parties in the house at that time. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's the rest of the story. Right, exactly. So, Chris, I have been to the Strong on a few occasions, and uh, I think it's just a uh, fantastic museum. It's, I don't think people realize how big it is, and we're going to ask you to describe it a little bit, how rich the collection is. First of all, can you tell us uh, how big is the museum? In square footage, if you're feeling cramped in your home setting today, we have 285,000 square feet. So the museum fills city block and is currently engaged in an expansion project that plans to add another 90,000 square feet to the museum. So almost increasing us by a third. It's not just all exhibits. There's a lot of interactive space. It really is a a destination for play. It is. And people spend all day there. So uh, we are open 362 days of the year. In 2019, we drew more than 600,000 people to the museum. It is so much fun for people of all ages. We never want to have the kind of experience where parents are bored, but kids are having fun. I call it the Chuck E. Cheese phenomenon, where the kids are enjoying themselves (laughs) and the grown-ups are suicidal. Uh, Oh, no. The parents love to play, too. (laughs) That's right. We want uh, every generation to play. Right. Chris, also, you have several restaurants on premises. You've got a library. You've got auditoriums, a school. Can you fill us in a little more on all that? We are your one-stop play destination. And uh, you're right. We have a vintage 1950s diner. We have a food court with Pizza Hut and Subway. If you want some of those things, Taco Bell, we have our own preschool where about 80 very lucky kids come to school every day at the museum. It is our own way of having playful learning for kids from the start of their academic experience. We have a research library with more than 200,000 volumes and tens of thousands of archival documents. It is so much, so multifaceted that people don't really get until they come through our doors and then their jaws drop. As chief curator, how does something find a place in your in your museum or do you are you really a repository for everything so that so that there is actually one record of the of the toys that are being produced? We would love to have enough room and time and people and money to have one of everything. So our objectives are to be representative, have the things that are breakthroughs, or if you're thinking about play in the year 2000, oh, you couldn't do that without thinking of fill in the blank here. Uh, so we've got fads, we've got evergreen toys. We added in 2019, I think, more than 6,000 items to the museum's collection, some very new, some of those hot 10 lists that people like you, Chris Byrne, put out at the holidays each year. (laughs) 
we grab those because that will characterize people's memory of that holiday season. Right. The things that they got or the things that they longed for and didn't get. But we also want the bloopers. We had a couple years ago a display that we called What Were They Thinking About Really Bad Toys? Um, I misnamed, love that. misconceived. We were afraid that the toy industry would be cranky about that, but they got as much of a kick out of it as we did putting it together. And we want everything in between. But frankly, we don't have enough space. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough personnel to do that. Right. So we really, really want representatives. And one of the shorthand ways that we capture what is out there in the world of toys is a massive collection of more than 30,000 toy trade catalogs. So oh, the wow. things that went out from manufacturers to retailers, when there, especially when there were more than four or five big retailers. And we've got a scope of that from the 1870s right down to the present to digital catalogs. That lets us, in a really space-efficient way, show what the scope of what's out there has been over the years. Is any of this digitized so that, uh, let's say, toy designers, et cetera, or toy company owners or whatever wanted to do research? Is there any way to access this information without going to Rochester? There is. Right now, the easiest way to do that is through Google Arts and Culture. If you put the search words strong national museum of play into google arts and culture you can go directly to our front page that shows you more than seventy thousand items from the strong museum's collection you can also work through the catalogs of our research library from our website museumofplay.org you can find every book magazine archival document that is in the Strong Museum's research holdings. So there are ways that you can search objects. There are ways that you can search printed and other resources and find what might catch your fancy. Do you ever, as an organization, participate in auctions for rare items? And is there an authentication issue with toys, as there is, say, with pieces of art or, or historical things? What is that like in, in your world as a curator? Do, do those issues come up? Those issues do come up. Not as much as for old master paintings or impressionists. Um, there isn't quite the same financial incentive to fake a My Little Pony from 1983. <laughs> uh, we buy hugely on eBay. Uh, it's hard for me to remember as a curator with more than 30 years under my belt when I didn't have eBay at my fingertips <laughs> to put in search terms, to look for things that are mint in box or in best possible condition to compare. Um, that is a perfect tool for collecting popular culture items we pursue. And today, sadly, I just had from eBay a message that I had been outbid for a Important game, uh, Milton Bradley's Mansion of Happiness, that oh, was wow. one of the earliest uh, board games, not Milton Bradley, he was the checkered game of life. Mansion of Happiness preceded that, and there was a nice one from the middle of the 19th century, up for sale. We made our top bid, somebody doubled our top bid, oh, my goodness. and... Uh, it, even in these days of financial pullback, somebody really wanted that nice board game. Now, and it, 
we already had a copy or two, but we wanted a backup copy because paper items fade under light. We wanted to have the capacity to rotate those out on display. Chris Bench, what are some of the favorite things that people gravitate to? I mean, in a museum, there's always things people go to. It's Girl with a Pearl Earring in the Hague. It's the Mona Lisa in at the Louvre. What are the things that people most gravitate to at the museum? Our Mona Lisa is undoubtedly our very first Monopoly game from Charles Darrow. It is circular. It is hand-painted on oilcloth. It was round because the Darrow family had a round kitchen table. It was oilcloth because kitchen tablecloths were made of oilcloth. And that's what Charles Darrow used to produce the very first Monopoly board. The cards are hand-typed. The money is just plain money. The houses and hotels are baseboard molding that's been sliced vertically, (laughs) kind of like you would those sliced and baked I get it. That's great. What's the story behind the acquisition of that? (laughs) You have asked one of the juicier questions. This was owned by the Forbes Galleries, Malcolm Forbes collection in New York City. And when Forbes was closing that down, they put their game collection up for auction at Sotheby's. And I asked our board of trustees for special permission to make a big investment in this game. And the head of our collections committee for the board said, Chris, just spend what you need. And I said, no, that is a recipe for disaster at an auction. You've got to give us a cap. And so they set a cap. It was way more than we're used to in any one fiscal year. Our curator went off to be there in person at the auction. This is a few years ago. I could watch what was happening live in figures, not in video. Right. And I saw it go above our cap. The phone rang, and it was our curator, Nick Ricketts, who said, oh, Chris, you saw what happened. I said, yes, I'm so sorry. You made a good try. We made our pitch. He said, no. That was me. And I said, wow, (laughs) let me walk down the hall and talk to the museum's president. (laughs) Not that we could run the tape backwards. It was a done deal. And he had only gone one increment over our top. He hadn't doubled our top. Uh And our board of trustees, our president said, you did the right thing. This is like a car museum. If you had your chance at the first Model T and you didn't take it, you would be kicking yourself forever after. So we're glad we splurged a little and we got the number one handmade original Monopoly set that, for the Strong Museum. That, that's that's, a, a, that's wonderful. wonderful. So I remember actually seeing that game when it was still part of the Forbes collection down on Fifth Avenue. Um, and getting to go back and see that. And so I remember it, and I certainly remember seeing it at the Strong. So that's that's a wonderful story. Uh, Chris Bench, uh, another toy I think you, at least I found very memorable, uh, was the Edison Talking Doll. It had a little record player on the inside. Can you tell us a little bit about that doll? You are absolutely right, Richard. It is on display in our exhibit called Play Pals about the various different dolls, action figures, stuffed animals that kids and grown-ups love playing with. And it is an example of one of those toy industry bloopers. It is not up there for Thomas Edison with his incandescent light bulb or for uh, his 
motion pictures or even the phonograph that's inside it. It is something that was a disaster. They were expensive. They were fragile. What makes them really eerie is that each doll had to be recorded one-off by wow. a young woman wow. screaming into a microphone nursery rhymes that would record <laughs> on a wax disc. Well, I've actually heard that thing, and it's a little bit like The Exorcist. It's a scary... <laughs> it is. It was just very You nailed very it. Yeah. I liken it to being Eleanor Roosevelt speaking to you from beyond the grave. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. But yeah, you through, know through what? A, I have, I have to interject here, though. That was still amazing and magical at that time. And we forget because nobody who lived at that time thought that was quaint. They thought it was a real achievement, something magical. Just like fast forward to 1959 when Chatty Cathy said 11 different things. That was amazing. And, and I think that's one of the cool things about the history of the toy industry, especially, is how all of these technologies have over the years become commonplace but there's or they seem quaint to us now but there was one time when they were amazing so edison's talking doll as chris byrne pointed out was a technological breakthrough it took decades more to reach the point of mattel's chatty kathy in the 1950s to have an effective cost efficient talking doll that could reach a mass market and satisfy that demand for a doll that could actually speak to you. And today, we've got so many different kinds of toys with chips built into them that can do more tricks than I can. But <laughs> it was that progression in technology, in expectations, that is wonderful to be able to trace through the Strong Museum's comprehensive collection. Uh, Chris Bench, uh, you very kindly uh, once took me on a tour of uh, the archives, which is uh, which are the toys that are not on display, and uh, you showed me a miniature electric chair. Now I'm going to let that sit for a second with everybody out there. I'm going to repeat it: a miniature doll-sized electric chair. It, it had a plug. It actually plugged into the wall, uh, and. <laughs> Can can you tell us a little? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that, Tori? Richard, Richard, you have a good memory, and that is one of the reasons I saved the doll electric chair, as we call it, for the conclusion of tours through our storage spaces. <laughs> it is not something that the Metropolitan Museum of Art, for all the great things they've got, they cannot duplicate that one i only wish i knew what and why it is a freaky thing uh, margaret strong collected hundreds of thousands of items but she didn't keep good records about the where or why of why she was grabbing things and she also had pickers out there acquiring things for her on mass. So who knows where it came from? It's not a patent model. It's not a salesman sample. Someone handcrafted this miniature electric chair that looks pretty functional. I have to say we have never tried to plug its wiring in because <laughs> it looks scary in its own right. 
<laughs> oh, what that says to me is that Sid from Toy Story was not a new concept. Kids have always loved to see what the demise of their dolls or toys might be. That's right. And when we inducted the Easy Bake Oven into the National Toy Hall of Fame, one of our national selection committee members at that point was Cheryl Henson, puppeteer Jim Henson's daughter, and her memory of Easy Bake Ovens was not delicious baked goods coming out of them. It was her and her brother shoving little green army men and plastic farm animals into the Easy Bake Oven and melting them down for free-form sculptures. So I love that. Like destroying things, kids don't play with things as manufacturers intend. One of the reasons that, in general, boys' toys are harder to come up with and vintage quality is because boys are rougher on their toys. And at the end of their play years, they're the ones who put cherry bombs into their toy cars. Girls probably, not to make too many stereotypes haven't typically done that with their Barbie dream house. You alluded to the Toy Hall of Fame a second ago. Uh, The Strong is home to the Toy Hall of Fame. It is home to the Toy Industry Hall of Fame. Can you tell us a little bit about those institutions within your institution? Back in 1998, a little museum in Salem, Oregon, founded the National Toy Hall of Fame, and we were so peeved with them that they beat us to the punch on recognizing classic toys. But we got our revenge four years later when they were inundated by people demanding that Raggedy Ann get into the National Toy Hall of Fame. Oh, please. They had petitions. Their phone lines were tied up with people saying Raggedy Ann should be in the Hall of Fame. They had picketers dressed as Raggedy Ann out in front of the museum. And by the time they inducted the toys that year, and I can reassure you that lobbying sometimes works, Raggedy got in, they were exhausted. And our president ran into their president at a museum conference. Our president said to her, You know, we've always envied you, your Hall of Fame. And she said, for the right price, it could be yours. Wow. So so the Strong Museum acquired the brand, the intellectual property, to the National Toy Hall of Fame. And in 2002, we brought it across the continent to Rochester. We have been inducting toys every November since then. It is a way to celebrate the evergreen toys, the ones that are timeless, the ones that generation after generation turn to with fondness. And if I'm remembering my tally, we're up to 71 classic toys and games in the Hall of Fame. Could you uh, fill in our listeners on the scandal that took place when uh, the Toy Hall of Fame uh, added, I believe it was the stick, into the Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, Can you uh, fill our uh, listeners in a little bit about that little uh, imbroglio? Sure. Cast your minds back to 2007. In 2005, the National Toy Hall of Fame had inducted the cardboard box into the Hall of Fame. And that year going to Toy Fair, I was sure that we were going to be 
pilloried or burnt in effigy with cardboard boxes by all these people who dedicate their lives and livelihoods to selling toys. But they love the cardboard box. They reminisced with us about, oh, I remember when we got that refrigerator, the cardboard box became a spaceship or a castle or a little house on the prairie. And two years later, we said, you know, we're going to do that again. We're going to induct the stick into the National Toy Hall of Fame. And I personally took heat from Stephen Colbert, who said, <laughs> and I'm nearly quoting, that Mr. Bench has ruined the toy business this holiday season because grown-ups are going out in the backyard and picking up sticks for their favorite children <laughs> and not going to Toys R Us and buying toys. <laughs> On the principle that almost any publicity is good publicity, uh, our PR people wrote to Stephen Colbert, challenged him to have me on the show to have a stick duel. He was not man enough to take me up on that <laughs> challenge. So he, he has sunk in my estimation. He knows how much of a threat I would be in my 114 pounds soaking wet uh, status. But uh, he could not take me up on that. So uh, we heard from some pediatricians who did the classic, you can put your eye out with a right, stick, right. Uh, kinds of lines. But most people and even dogs know that a stick isn't <laughs> a thing for play. It's a cross-species play thing. And uh, we are proud that the stick, the cardboard box, and the blanket are all non-traditional toys in the National Toy Hall of Fame. And, and I wonder I, if String is in the Cat National Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, but I digress. Get, string gets nominated as uh, Cat's Cradle and Kite String and all sorts of other things. Chris Bench, what we're really talking about is the totality of a child's play experience. And I talk a lot about all the different types of play that kids need because it's really a balanced diet of play, just like we have a balanced diet of nutrition. I think that's so important right now. And a blanket, I mean, my brothers and I, a blanket could provide an afternoon of excitement as we built a fort in the living room and certainly we beat each other with sticks. That was our job. Um, you know, all of that great stuff. I mean, and we still had plenty of plastic to play with as well. You're right. And some of those non-traditional kinds of play are so hard for us as a museum to capture. Nobody puts their childhood blanket on eBay for me to acquire. So <laughs> I'm thrilled when grown-ups share pictures of blanket forts. We just this week launched a Play Stories project on the Strong Museum's website, asking people, especially in this era of playing at home and working with found things in your house or home, what are you playing with? Share that, whether that's a video, whether that's photos, whether that's a written story. That is something that's going to be impossible for us to find in the future, and it is perfect to capture now, both for the history of play and for the inspiration of other people out there who are confronting these same challenges. Is there a holy grail out there? Is there some toy that you are, are still searching for that you are hoping to get that you have yet to find? The ones that our marketing people wish we could find are those famous people's toys. So if we could find Elvis Presley's childhood toy guitar uh -huh. or Martha Stewart's miniature saucepan or you name it, the thing that really 
capsulizes someone's ultimate fame and career, uh, that would be a dream as far as both the history of play and the promotability of here's something, the sort of piece of the true cross that you've got to see at the Strong Museum. <laughs> That's great. And one of the things I always think is so so interesting is how the toy industry has always reflected the culture at large. And I'm just wondering when people go through the Strong Museum, what's the response to things that seem so antique? And, and is there a wow factor? And is there, I never thought of that? And what do people come out of the museum saying that they, they might never have thought of before? I was just working with a curator at a toy and doll museum in Kansas City, Missouri. She is working on an exhibit about STEM learning, uh, that science, technology, math kinds of processes, and how that worked for girls across the last century. And you may be surprised that where in the 1970s, Lego put out bricks that were pink and pastel for girls. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, there were an astonishing number of construction toys with both girls and boys assembling things on the box cover. So we have varied in how we've had gender preconceptions, how marketers and manufacturers have appealed to parents who are often, especially before the era of uh, expanding allowances, uh, been the ones who are buying toys. And so there are various different gradations and ups and downs of those kinds of stereotypes and expectations. One of the classic bloopers in our collection is when Lionel toy trains. Their slogan in the 1950s was, makes a man feel like a boy and a boy feel like a man. They recognized they were missing 50% of the market. Right. So yes. in 19... 57, they brought out what they called the Lady Lionel train. It was a <laughs> locomotive with a baby blue coal car, and it went over about as well as that Detroit product from 1957, the Edsel. Edsel. <laughs> and it was a total disaster. If girls wanted a toy train, they wanted a toy train that looked like a real train, not like this fakey pastel thing. And there are stories, I don't have proof of them, that toy shop owners took these pastel trains into the back room and hit it with black spray paint because they were exactly the same molds. They were right. just a different color and resold them as regular Lionel trains. We think right now that we're so new and we're so progressive, but really these are issues that have been going on, especially when it comes to gender and what's appropriate for gender. They've been going on for the last century or more. Yes, and that's one of the sort of big patterns that we as historians of play look at across our collection, and it's the dueling patterns of change and continuity and what is changing, what is morphing, is it materials, is it expectations? And then the other part is that play stays the same in lots of ways. Yeah, uh, I agree. One of our analogies is that the Sims video game is essentially playing dollhouse in a digital format. It's the same kind of play. It's just different tools for it. I would say child development has really remained unchanged. The props, however, have changed to reflect the culture at large. So Chris Bench, this has been amazing. Uh, if people want to connect with you, uh, tell us where they can go. Tell us, remind us again where they can see the stuff online. 
You can go to our website, museumofplay.org. You can go to Google Arts and Culture and put the search term in Strong National Museum of Play. You'll see more than 70,000 items from the museum's collection there. It's never too soon to nominate toys for this year's National Toy Hall of Fame. You can do that at toyhalloffame.org and this is better than democracy you can nominate your favorite toy over and over again <laughs> i still remember the year when we saw a sudden spike in nominations for the toy barrel of monkeys that turned out to all come from a single uh, internet provider <laughs> and it was the daughter of the man who had invented barrel of monkeys I who was that. trying to get her father's toy in she gets points for being the the most loyal child chris bench chief curator of the strong museum in rochester and by the way get to rochester and see this amazing place thank you for joining us richard always great to chat with you it was great this is the playground podcast and we'll look forward to seeing you next time